The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. When Peter, the writer of this letter that you just read, was on the beach with the resurrected Jesus, Jesus asked him, Do you love me? Isn't that a good question? What would your answer be to the Lord this morning? Sam, do you love me? We just sang it. Like Jesus, I love you. Did we mean it? Well, after asking Peter, do you love me? Jesus added this. Feed my sheep. Now, how could Peter obey Jesus' command to feed his sheep? Well, here's one way. By writing this letter, this letter of 1 Peter that we're preaching through in these weeks and months. This letter is food for sheep, for us. So let's eat. That is, let's be nourished as much as instructed. For as much as this text and this sermon might be for our brains, it's actually for feeding our spirits. So what then is the food from this passage with which we are to be fed? Well, here's our diet for the next few minutes. Number one, we're going to ask five questions. Who writes this letter? Who is this Peter? That's something for us to chew on. Number two, on whose authority does he write? Ruminate on that. Number three, to whom is today's text addressed? And we'll bite into that. Number four, what should the readers do and avoid doing? Digest that. And number five, why bother? Those five questions. So number one, who writes this letter to us? And what difference does it make to ask that question? Well, if I received a phone call this morning and they said, uh, what's the number on that account? It would matter whether that's my wife or a telemarketer. Who's speaking matters to us. So who's writing this letter to us? Well, he gives us three credentials. He says he's a fellow elder, a shepherd. You can see that in verse 2. And he's a shepherd who's under the chief shepherd. You can see that down in verse 4. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, secondly. And thirdly, he's a partaker in the glory that is yet to be revealed. Now, why would he list these three in his little brief resume there? I think he would only mention items that have some bearing on what he's been saying and what he's about to say. So he doesn't say, you know, I'm from such and such a town and I'm this many years old because he doesn't think those are relevant factors to underscore the importance of what he's about to say. So why would he mention these three things? I mean, think of what else he does not mention. He does not mention that he's married. He does not mention that he has a brother named Andrew. He does not mention that he's a professional fisherman and at one time he caught 153 large fish in one catch. Now, other biblical writers thought that was important enough to mention about him, but he doesn't mention it about himself here in this text. He leaves that out. He doesn't mention that he carries a sword and lopped off Malchus' ear as a demonstration of his loyalty. He doesn't mention that he personally knew King Agrippa. He doesn't mention that when in prison he was awakened by an angel and his chains fell off and the angel led him out of the prison. Impressive. Or as Darth Vader would say, most impressive. 
He doesn't mention in his little resume here that he's one of the original 12 apostles. Now, we're currently, as you saw in the welcome this morning, we're interviewing a candidate to become a pastor here at the North Campus. And I have a hunch that if he was one of the original 12 apostles, it would show up in his resume somewhere. He does not mention here that his name was Simon, but that he was renamed by Jesus himself. Now, where did you, you get your name from? And if you were personally renamed by Jesus, I have a hunch it might show up in your correspondence. But Peter doesn't mention it in his letter here. And as far as I have been able to determine, he's the first person in all of history that is called Peter or Cephas. He's the first one. I have three brothers. One of them is Peter, Michael. He's not the first Peter. This is the first Peter, first one ever. I'm Samuel. I'm not the first Samuel by a long shot. If you were the very first person with your name, that might be of some significance, but he doesn't mention it here. He doesn't mention that he walked on water. He doesn't mention that Jesus himself sent him to prepare the Passover meal. He doesn't mention that in the upper room, it was Jesus who served him the cup. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to have communion here, and I suspect that some of us, if we were personally handed our cup by Jesus, just might show up in our conversations. He doesn't mention that he ate fish that was cooked by Jesus himself on the beach. He doesn't mention that early on Sunday morning he ran, he ran to the tomb. And it was empty. He doesn't mention that he was with his own eyes able to see the empty grave clothes. He was there. And he doesn't mention that when he preached at Pentecost, 3,000 people came to faith in one day. Now, most evangelists that I know, when they're mailing out their brochures to promote their crusades, they would mention something like that. He doesn't mention it here. He doesn't mention that he said to a lame man, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And taking him by the hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And he was walking and leaping and praising God. Is that what your heart does when you hear an account like this? And Peter doesn't mention it here in his little resume. He doesn't mention, now fasten your seatbelts here, church. He doesn't mention that he exposed the deception of Ananias and Sapphira, and immediately they dropped dead. And a great fear came upon the whole church. Duh. He doesn't mention that multitudes carried their sick into the streets, that as Peter came by, his shadow might fall on them, and they were all healed. He doesn't mention that when he was arrested and imprisoned and forbidden to teach in Jesus' name, he boldly said what has been quoted now for a couple millennia, we ought to obey God rather than man. And he doesn't mention that when Tabitha dies, who did they call for? They call for Peter, who comes, sends the people out of the room, 
kneels and prays. And turning to the body, he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opens her eyes, and when she sees Peter, she sits up. These things are really important things about a guy. And if he doesn't mention any of that stuff, then he thinks there's something else that authorizes what he's about to say, not those things. What then are the three credentials he puts forward? Well, we've mentioned them already. He's a fellow elder, he's a witness, eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus, and he's a partaker in the glory to come. So let's look at those three next. He's a fellow elder, one of the plurality. He's not higher or lower than the others. He puts himself on the same footing with all the other elders. He's not a vicar, he's not the pope. He's just one of the elders because he's going to be talking to elders. It's like if I said to the grandparents here, now grandparents, as a grandparent, let me say to you something. I'm just identifying with you. I'm not saying I'm a better grandparent or anything. I'm just saying we, we grandparents were on the same footing when it comes to understanding certain things and facing certain challenges. That's what he's doing here. He's a fellow elder. Second credential, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now what did he witness? He was in the garden when Jesus sweat, as it were, drops of blood. Now, I've watched Vicki give birth, and her brow was sweating, and it was contorted, but there wasn't any blood there, and there wasn't anything she could do to stop it once it started. Peter saw Jesus. He saw Jesus arrested and bound by a band of soldiers and their captain. He saw the officer strike Jesus in the court of the high priest. He saw Jesus flogged in Pilate's courtyard. When I was in college, I made a cudgel, one of those, it's a wooden handle about this long, on the end of which you attach leather strips. And then on the end of the leather strips, you can attach, in those days, they would use bone or metal. I attached some metal because I had, happened to have some in my toolbox. And I got a box that was about the size of a dog kennel, and I began to whip it. And my first surprise was is that I just couldn't whip it stroke after stroke because when I applied the first stroke, I had to put my foot on it to pull it back out because the bits of metal had gone through. And as they came out, they pulled little scraps of box with them. And before I got anywhere near 30 lashes, the box was kind of the shape of a box and mostly some pulp. So I thought, I'm going to try this on some dirtier stuff. And so I went over to a tree, and I don't recommend cruelty to trees. I am a crab tree. But I <laughs> began to whip the tree, and by the time I got to 30 lashes, I was well through the bark and into the meat of the wood. Peter saw them do this to his friend. He saw the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and push it onto his head mock him with a purple robe. Peter heard the gathered crowds cry out about his friend, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Peter saw Jesus carry on his bloody back his own cross to the place of the skull, Golgotha. He saw, with his own eyes, Peter saw Jesus crucified, spiked to the wood, 
not able to scratch himself or wipe his bloody lip or shoo away the flies. He had no bathroom privileges, but was publicly humiliated. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Peter was there. He's a fellow elder, he's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, and he's a partaker in the glory to be revealed. Peter is an eyewitness of past glory. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. In his next letter, the second letter from Peter, he writes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He was there. That's glory revealed in the past. But there's a glory yet to be revealed. Let me read to you from Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its bondage to decay into the glory of the freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a glory yet coming. All those in favor of a redeemed body say aye. Those opposed, no. The eyes are above the nose. <laughs> Christian, you are not a witness of Christ's sufferings in the way Peter was. But you shall have the privilege of being a partaker in the glory of Jesus in the same way that Peter will. So these three then are Peter's credentials. He's a fellow elder, he's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, and he's a partaker of the glory to be yet revealed. And why are these important? Because he's going to speak about eldership in the context of suffering with the view to future glory. That's why those credentials matter. Now, he's not merely writing on his authority and his own credentials. So on whose authority does Peter write? That's our second question. Whose authority does he have? Well, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. He's speaking on behalf of God. That's his authorization, the authority of God. This text that we're reading this morning and looking at this morning is God speaking to us. Third question, to whom is today's text addressed? Verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you. Now, many people reading that might say, well, I'm not an elder, and they kind of start to mentally check out. This is written to the elders. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I exhort the elders among you. He's writing to the you there, including the elders that are among them. He's writing in the presence of the entire church. Peter writes to elders while everybody else is eavesdropping, so to speak, which provides a measure of, of earthly accountability. It would be like if in the presence of all the children and the youth that are here and all the women that are here, I said to dads, now dads, here's your job. Your job is to commend the mother of these children. That's your job. Now, I'm talking to the men, the dads, but wait. All the kids and all the youth and all the women got to hear that instruction. 
They know what the dads are supposed to be doing. That's what Peter's doing here. He is speaking to the elders, but he's speaking to everybody, to all of us. He's speaking openly about how elders should conduct themselves. And notice, he's exhorting them. He's not commanding them. He's not heavy-handed. He's writing as a fellow elder. He's exhorting himself to behave this way as well as the other elders. The elders are not under compulsion. You see that phrase in there. He doesn't say to them, remember now, when I speak, people drop dead. He doesn't pull rank. So, Peter, on the authority of God, writes to the church now. Fourth question, what does he say? What should his readers do and avoid doing? Well, all readers, elders and everyone else, should encourage the elders to shepherd well, namely, set an example and follow that example. So the elders should set an example and lead, and everybody else should follow that example as the elders follow Jesus. So Peter gives the elders three pairs of do's and do nots. Don't shepherd under compulsion, but do it willingly. Don't do it for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Don't be domineering, but be an example. So how are the elders to exercise oversight? Willingly, eagerly, and as models. Now what do the elders get out of this? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. But first I want to ask the question, what does it mean for an elder to pay attention to the flock? To pay attention to the flock. What does that mean? I get help from Paul speaking to the elders in Acts chapter 20 where he says this, Therefore I, Paul, testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. I'm innocent. I'm guilty. You can't charge me with wrongdoing. Well, how does he, how does he vindicate himself? How, what's his rationale? What's his justification? I'm innocent of the blood of all for, so now he's going to explain. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's his warrant. That's my job, and I've done it. I've declared to you the whole counsel, not just my favorite passages, the whole counsel. He continues, pay careful attention. That's what I'm asking. How do you pay careful attention? How do you do this? Well, he's saying you declare the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, not according to the whole counsel of God. They'll do this to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So do you see Paul's willingness and his eagerness and his modeling of vigilance to guard the truth? Back to Peter. He exhorts the elders to become examples. Of what? Well, the Bible offers us several answers, but allow me to point to just one, and we're going to consider it in next week's sermon on verses 5 and 6 in this same chapter. We should be examples of this. Humble service. Humility is what elders should model. Now, are elders the only believers that should model humility? Clearly not, but elders are exhorted to lead by example. Humility wisely suffers. 
When Peter was an eyewitness of all that suffering of Jesus, he didn't just see blood and agony. He saw humility. Because Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and became obedient even to death on a cross. That's what Peter was seeing there before his very eyes. He saw humility, and Peter saw it as beautiful, something to be replicated. Jesus did it. Peter's modeling it in this letter. He doesn't brag about all these miracles. And he's saying, elders, now, just be humble. Model humility. Now, throughout Peter's letter, there's a pattern. Before there's glory, there's suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result. You're tested now, it'll result in praise and glory. There it is. And honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Get the sequence there? Chapter 1, verse 21, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Death first, glory. No resurrections without crucifixions. Chapter 2, verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So that you do all this suffering, that's, then God sees that as gracious. He doesn't see that if there isn't a that for him to see. Chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer, suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Future. Chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Still in the mail, still coming. Chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves, go down, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, lift you up. Chapter 5, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the pattern. Glory is preceded by suffering. So, Bethlehem, you're my flock, but you're not my flock. Every under-shepherd has a chief shepherd. It's in this text. Now, a little commercial here. We currently need more under-shepherds. We need a lot of small group leaders. Some of the small groups that were wonderfully open and inviting to people now consider themselves full with all the social distancing because their living rooms are only so big and they can only hold so many people. Well, we need more living rooms. We need more people to lead small groups. And I'm asking if that might be some of you this morning. I, I'm confident many of you who think, I, I can't do it. You can do it. You don't have to have a, a divinity degree. You don't have to graduate from, from a seminary. You don't have to be able to play the guitar. You, if you can plug in a coffee pot and open a Bible, you're good. You can be a leader. And I would encourage you to consider becoming a leader by attending an orientation we have for new leaders scheduled for next Sunday at 6.30 p.m. A week from today, 6.30, here at the North Campus. Consider becoming a small group leader. Close the commercial. 
if eldering is not a matter of perks and privilege and power, but a matter of humility, taking on responsibility for guarding the deposit, of hard work, long hours, of suffering with the sheep, yes, elders know suffering personally. Dear flock, don't keep your anguish to yourself. You can bring it to the elders. And God uses means to shepherd his flock, the, the means of elders, imperfect elders. If eldering, I'm asking this question, if eldering is difficult, and it is, then why would anybody want to become one? Why shoulder that yoke? And Peter answers it. It's our fifth question. Why bother? Why bother to shepherd the flock willingly, eagerly, humbly, striving to be, become a godly example? Because there's a reward. You see it in that fourth verse. And the reward, look at this, is unfading, durable, perpetual, abiding, enduring, imperishable future. So summary, this text is written by a fellow elder, an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus and a partaker of the glory to be revealed, and he speaks on the authority of God, and he addresses the elders and you that the elders should shepherd well as good examples, mainly of humility. And why bother? Because when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So how shall, the, how shall we then live as models of humility as God would have you? It's in the text. And how shall we grow in this humility? Well, observe Peter, who observed Christ. And what do you gain from it? An unfading crown of glory. As we approach the communion portion of this service, if you don't already have one of these cups, you can sure get up right now and go to the tables just outside the door and get one. You're welcome to do that. I want to draw your attention to the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So we're talking about our Lord's death. And in remembering his crucifixion, we can see that he fulfilled all three aspects of Peter's exhortation. Not under compulsion, but willingly. You know, he could have called 12,000 legions of angels, 12 legions of angels, and they would have taken him down off the cross. Those spikes did not hold him to the cross. He held the spikes to the cross. He's there willingly. Second, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He went to the cross for the joy set before him, says the writer of Hebrews. And third, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter, earlier in this same letter, chapter 2, he says, for to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. And he humbly washes the feet of his small group and then he tells them that they ought to do the same for others. 
Peter is exhorting us to do what he saw modeled in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.